and welcome to the Collectability Podcast. My name is Tanya Edwards and I co-founded Collectability with John Reardon. From time to time, I will host our podcast and speak with friends and colleagues from the watch industry and my own time at Patek Philippe. Today, it is my great honour and pleasure to welcome my dear friend and long-time Patek Philippe colleague, Pamela Cloutier. Thank you, Tanya. Pamela has worked as a senior manager in the watch industry for over 30 years and is an exceptional font of knowledge about fine watches. For over 14 years, Pamela was Patek Philippe's area director of the Americas, Asia and the Pacific Rim. In other words, she was responsible for a major chunk of the world's most important watch markets. The number of Patek-related topics that we could discuss with Pamela are endless, and we will certainly cover a broad range today. During her tenure at Patek, particularly during the 1990s and 2000s, was a time of significant change at the company. This was the era of Philippe Stern, and a period when he really made his mark on the company by, for example, introducing new movements, such as the innovative small complications like the annual calendar and travel time, building a new state-of-the-art workshop in the then little-known area of plan les Watts, launching a new ad campaign that 26 years later is still running worldwide, opening the world's most important private watch museum, and growing international markets to an unprecedented level. These are just a few of Philippe Stern's important and extraordinary benchmarks. Pamela had the great privilege of working very closely with Philippe Stern during this time and had a front row seat observing his decision-making process and then implementing his plans, which set the company on its trajectory to its position today as the world's finest watchmaker. Prior to joining Patek Philippe, Pamela's career in the watch industry began with Dior watches and following her influential time at Patek, she became the chief operating officer of Di Grisogono, then started Ralph Lauren's prestigious entry into the watch and jewellery world as VP International Sales and Distribution. Pamela is currently managing partner and oversees international sales and distribution at Genus Watches. She lives in Geneva and it is from her hometown that we are conducting this podcast today. So welcome, Pamela. No, it's me that says welcome, Tanya. (laughs) You came all the way to Geneva. (laughs) Well, I love being in Geneva. I really, really do. You and I have had the privilege of knowing each other for over 30 years. Yeah, a long time. A long long time. time. Yeah. It's wonderful to be able to speak to you today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for agreeing to do this. So let's give everybody a little bit of background to you. And then we're going to go straight into Patek. Well, it's going to be a trip down memory lane, and you're going to have to help me remember some things. But it's true. It was a a fantastic time. It was uh, such a privilege. And it was pivotal, I think, in in the life of Patek Philippe. I was lucky. I was really, really lucky to work at Patek Philippe from early, I would say, September 1990 till 2005. Wow. So that really was a pivotal time. And we're going to go through that and explain why it was so pivotal. But let's first introduce how you got the job. I mean, this was an amazing job, a very senior job at Patek Philippe at the time, without question, one of the most senior roles for a woman. Yes, I was an unusual beast. (laughs) Yes, you were a very unusual beast. And you were already unusual in that you grew up in Geneva. Yes, yes. With American parents, you were educated at the international school, Mm -hmm. and then you went to college in the USA. So you had a real understanding of America, of, of the market, of the culture, but you grew up in Europe. You grew up in Geneva, so you understood Geneva too. And I think it's those two critical markets that you understood helped you. I'm assuming that's true. So tell us. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, one of the things that was such uh, so important in my career was my ability to speak English. I mean, surprisingly, there are many, many people in the watchmaking industry that don't speak English, and at the time, even fewer than they do today. But it was because I was bilingual, because I am bilingual, and I'm also a dual national now, made it super easy for me to find my way in the watchmaking world. And I 
by virtue of my ability to speak English, opened doors. I started my first jobs taking care of English-speaking markets. Whatever it was, whoever came, whatever, whoever knocked on the door, if they spoke English, they had to speak to me. So what was the job at Patek that you were being asked to consider? Well, I was referred by a friend to a friend who was working in the company, and they were looking for they thought they needed to look for a new area sales manager to manage the business in specifically in the United States. And I got a call from the commercial director at the time, Frayne Patek Philippe, and said, a friend of yours has recommended you to me, and I am looking for a new area sales manager for the United States. Would you please send me your CV? So it wasn't a job that was being published. It was, I would say, a a private recruitment, but that's what I did. So I sent my curriculum vitae to the company, and I was one of the three or four candidates that they interviewed. And it was a long process for me. It was a very long process. I didn't realize how long it was going to be, and I really, really wanted a new job. <laughs> but it took Patek Philippe 11 months wow. to finally agree and offer me a job. So why do you think it took so long? Because I was different. First of all, I was a woman entering a man's world, and I had to meet so many people in the company. I had to meet almost all of the directors of the major departments in the company. I had to meet the distributors. I was asked to go to the Basel Fair, and I was interviewed by the markets that I was going to be taken care of and all kinds of people in those markets. I was interviewed by my colleagues. Imagine my colleagues in the same department <laughs> or my same future department interviewed me just to make sure they really, really were so concerned that I fit in. It was unusual to be a woman in the in the watchmaking world. And they were all guys, and it was like me interloping, coming into their club, and they had to make sure that it was going to be okay and that I was going to be able to handle entering the the business this way and that, I guess, that they liked me and they thought that I had the competence to, to handle the job. It was a big job. A big job. A I very mean, big the job. The U.S. was and still is, without yes. question, one of the most important markets for not only Patek, but any luxury right. brand right. in the world. Right. You know, it's interesting, Pamela, to talk to you because we still talk today in 2022, 23. There are so few women in mm -hmm. the watch industry. I know. I know. But I mean, you were, I'm assuming at Patek, other than a few watchmakers, the only woman. Yes. All my colleagues were men. And I was, gosh, Tanya, I was at least 15 years younger, if not 20 years younger than anybody else in my department. So there we have it again. Here yeah. was this time mm -hmm. when senior management, they'd done their time, they were older. Mm -hmm. We don't see that so much anymore, no. do we? No. But that obviously was then. So you had this double whammy of being young. Yes. So that was a concern, I'm sure, for everybody. How does this yeah. young whippersnapper know what to do for the world's <laughs> most important watchmaker? And then secondly, oh my goodness, you were a woman. But fortunately, you pass with flying colours and were given this really important market to look yeah. after. And how were things with the U.S. at that time? Well, things were turbulent, to be honest. I didn't have all the inside info at that point about exactly what was happening and how things worked. But I found out quite quickly. And, of course, I had a job description and I had a proper role that I knew I had to fulfill and I had commercial objectives. And I also was offered a big opportunity to take a look at the market and to develop the market. So for me, that's somebody coming and saying, come on, grow our business. Wow, that was great. But in order to grow that business, I had to spend a lot of time also resolving issues. And there was an issue with communication with the United States at the time, with a distributor that was long established in the U.S. and who managed Patek Philippe's business in the U.S., so that's the Henry Stern Watch that's Agency. That's the Henry Stern Watch that Agency. That still is running the U.S. business today right. and has been since the 1930s. That's right. HSWA at the time was an independent company. Mm -hmm. um, we had the same owner, but Patek Philippe did not own HSWA. Oh. 
HSWA bought and sold watches and still does for its own account. So they were a client. So there was a certain reserve of client respect. Everybody knows that, you know, in, in business. And uh, it was special. This is something else. It was I inherited the privilege of managing that business. There had been a lot of people that went before me. And then it was my turn to help HSWA sell Patek Philippe watches in the United States. That was my role. So that's really more of a communications role, a right. marketing role, even though obviously you're about Support. sales and distribution. Yes, but I was there to make sure they had what they needed to do their business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't me who was selling to the American retailers. It was HSWA. So, and my job was to support HSWA and resolve any issues that were on the table between the distributor and the company. And because of the history of, of HSWA, there wasn't any way not to get along. We had to get along because we had to work together. That's the way it was with the Stern family. You can back out. You can't change your kids you're, you're part of the family. You're part of the family. It's the family. You yeah. have to figure out a way to get along. Okay, so let's sort of drill down a little bit more on that because I think it's an issue that still exists today, which is that America is its own superpower. It's an extraordinary market. And it's often hard for European companies to understand that. Right. And I think it was, again, one of Philippe Stern's extraordinary decisions that he makes. The correct decision was to put an American into that role in Geneva. Mm-hmm. To, who truly understood what the American market was all about, but also understood what the Swiss market was all about, what a Swiss company was all about, because those are two completely different things. But you had the ability to bring the two together. Yeah. But don't forget, you know, Mr. Philip Stern spent time himself at HSWA when he was growing into fill the shoes of his father when he was transitioning to become the boss of the company. So he lived in America. And he knew how different America was. So he also knew what needed to happen to allow HSWA to do their job and to do it well. And he did realize at one point that something had to change at the headquarters in Geneva in order to have Geneva understand what HSWA needed to do their job and to do it well. This was a time of big change at Patek Philippe. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. But let's start off with what it was like to work for Patek Philippe at the time. Because although it really wasn't that long ago, it's almost seems like another century. I mean, it was another century, obviously, in some ways. But that was the time when the headquarters were literally above the shop. They were That's correct. Uh, 42 yep. Rue du Rhone, where the headquarters had been forever. Mm -hmm. And of course, the original workshop was at the very, very top with the most spectacular views of the lake. So tell us, what was a normal day when you started? I was in the, what we called the commercial department and I had three, three colleagues and myself and we had a boss. And every morning we had, uh, I would say, our obligatory, mandatory uh, mail call uh, meeting. What that meant was that we, everybody came to the conference room across from Mr. Philip Stern's office in the big boardroom, and he sat at the head of the table, and we sat around the table, and he handed out the mail to us. So all mail that came into Patek Philippe at the time came in by post or fax, and the mail was opened in the mail room and put in a folder, organized, given to Mr. Philip Stern, and he read all the mail. He read every single read piece of correspondence that came in from all around the world. Every single one. And then we would sit around the table in the morning and he would hand us our folder or pile of mail and he would tell us what was important in that pile. And he would make comments about certain things that he thought should be done or what his opinion was about something or, oh, by the way, call him and then get back to me. Let me know what he says. And it was a very personal, hands-on kind of approach that's how he had an oversight of what was actually happening with the people who were in his distribution family and the people who were running his business in Geneva every single day. 
We did that every single day. Every single day. Every single day, yeah. I mean, we complain <laughs> about meetings nowadays, but that's extraordinary. No, but that, that was our time to get together. And it was yes, also and a time. it was productive. Yes, it was extremely productive. And sometimes it took longer and sometimes it was shorter. But it was also a time when we, as uh, independent market managers, you know, we had big jobs and a lot to do in a day. But I could say, oh, by the way, I have a group of visitors today and they're coming from this country and there's this number of people and we're doing a factory visit or we're just going to go see, you know, complications or I'm having a training with this group of people. It was a time to do a quick exchange so I could hear what my colleagues were doing in their markets and where their problems were, and they could hear where my challenges were, and the top managers of the company knew what was going on. And there was an, another important thing. There were other senior executives in that mail hall room. One of them was the head of production. And it was always very interesting because the store at the time was considered a market. It was one of the places where we sold watches. So every single day they would tell us how many watches have been sold. And we had a daily monthly tracking. Every Monday we sold three watches. When Tuesday we sold four watches. And we would go all the way to the end of the month. And we get it. they would tell us the total at the end of the month. It was just one of those rituals that happened every day. And then there was another person who was in charge of all of the shipping and the export department. And that was very important to understand who was getting shipped and what was going out and in what order. Because Patek Philippe was a worldwide distributed brand and we were a small team. And sometimes when they were packing a big shipment to the United States, they couldn't be packing to Japan because it just wasn't enough time. So we said, okay, America goes out first, and then it'll be Hong Kong, then it'll be Japan. Anyway, that's how we knew. So every single decision was made in those morning, Pretty, overall big decisions were yeah, made in that overall, morning. Yeah, overall. But you knew what was going on. Now, that's incredible. We knew what was going on, and we knew because we sat for usually 45 minutes, sometimes it was an hour and a half with our colleagues, and we, we saw each other every day. It was a personal style. Mr. Stern knew what was happening in our little company. Of course, the size was very different. Yes. So so how many yeah. people were working there when you started? I think, approximately? I think on my badge, because we all had badges and, and my access badge, I think I was number 358. And I mean, now it's over 2,000 or something, yeah, isn't it's it? It's a lot more. I it's mean, certainly a lot, so, lot more. So everything's different now. When you started, and I remember this well because I was also at the company at the same time, there were how many workshops? 14 different workshops scattered around yes. Geneva. Yes. And you just mentioned that if anyone came in and wanted a tour because you spoke English and that was the international language, as really it still is today. So it yes. didn't matter where people came from. They came from America or Asia or wherever, obviously other than Europe, you were going to look after them and take them around yes, the workshops. Yes, I did. And that, was... that must have been so time consuming though. It was. Because you had to get on a bus and go between each one, didn't you? <laughs> well, it was either buses or a fleet of taxis or whatever. <laughs> but we had workshops in 14 different locations and it was a challenge to get everybody to into those workshops to see what was happening and how the watches were made. But we did it. And imagine for me, I mean, it, at the beginning of my career, it was the fastest way to learn about fine watchmaking and actually see live how it happened. So I would take my guests into the, explain where we were and what was happening in the workshop. And it usually happened just outside. And then I would go into the building. Of course, I'd warned the manager of the workshop and everybody was ready to receive the, the visitors because it was important for us that people came to see how the watches were made. We would go in and most of the people in the workshops didn't speak any English. So they would explain what they were doing, but I would have to translate. And I translated, and I translated, and I translated. Let me tell you how quickly you learn when you have to translate. I'm sure. And, of course, share that knowledge and walk up right behind everybody and just look over their shoulder and look at what they were doing. And it was wonderful to see the passion with which everybody worked. And when I think back on it, you know, they were all in different locations in the city, a lot of my colleagues never saw a completely finished timepiece because the people working on the cases were only working on the cases and they were in a separate part of town. And the people who were assembling movements were in a completely different workshop on the other side of town. And all those things came together via courier services or people on motorbikes that would drive things around from one workshop to the other. It was it was very, very different. And I 
I know logistically how difficult the production was, let alone people like us going in and visiting. That's one thing. But imagine if you were trying to run in a production in so many different sites and trying to communicate between the sites. That had to change. That was the big project. So, so, so that was the big we project. know now that yes. Philip Stern already saw that as an issue. Yes. And had obviously been planning for a very long time to bring all his workshops together that's in right. one place. And obviously, that's not easy. You need a lot of land. He had the vision to go out to Plan Wat and purchase a large piece of land. And, and that was hard to get. I bet it was hard very, to get. Very, very hard to get politically in Geneva. It was mm. very hard to get. To get permission, you mean? Yes, yes. And Mr. Stearns, he knew what his vision was for Patek Philippe. He knew what he had to do to bring us all together. It was his dream. And he realized it. He did it. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. And now, as we all know, most watch brands are in Plan Le Watt. Yes. <laughs> it's no longer a field near the no, Renault station. No. Everyone's there, and it's now known as Plan Le Watch. Yes. Um, so, again, he was a man with such amazing vision. Let's go back just a little bit before that to 1989, which was actually the 150th anniversary mm-hmm. of the company. And that's really when Philippe Stern started to put his mark on the future of right. the company. As we all know, the world's most complicated timepiece, the Calibre 89, was introduced to the world after nine years of research and development. An incredible auction of Patek Philippe watches was conducted. And we've spoken about that in previous podcasts because it really shifted the whole auction world. It I shifted think, I everything. I think it was the first one brand yes, only it was. auction. You're absolutely right. It was the first brand only auction and it changed the way auction houses did business. Right. And Philippe had made a mark. People were sitting up and paying attention. But what you learned overseeing the US market was things were changing much faster there in some ways. Oh, the markets were so competitive, Tanya. There was so much competition out there. I mean, the companies are were big and they're clever and they had a lot of money. Like Rolex, like, yes. Omega, Cartier. Cartier, uh, big players in the American market. Because and they saw the value of being yes, big in America. Yes. And Patek just couldn't compete with that in terms of marketing. And I know a lot of our listeners today don't appreciate that in the early 90s, or almost throughout the whole of the 90s, Patek was not a well-known brand at all. No. It was a very elite brand. brand. It was only known by a few very privileged people. And at least you lived in Geneva. People had heard of Patek in Geneva. Right. But right. I lived in the States, and it was an exception, not the rule, if somebody had heard of Patek. So obviously, the marketing needed to change. Mm-hmm. But Patek wasn't putting the kind of money in that its competitors were doing. But now we understand why. Yes, In hindsight, we learned afterwards that Mr. Stern had a dream, and that dream was to put us in one place, put all the workshops together, and he had to save for that. Because he he paid for it out of his own pocket. Yes. It's his. It's his personal money. And that was his dream. And he afforded that dream and everything else that we did. Which is extraordinary. Which is extraordinary. The sign of an extraordinary businessman. Yes. As we say again and again and again. And it was choices. He had a lot of choices to make. And his whole thinking, his whole life was about how he was going to protect and grow Patek Philippe. And preserve its heritage. Yes. And preserve its heritage. Preserve it for his son Thierry to take over, who's now running it today. And just as Thierry's doing today, preserving it for his sons. One careful decision at a time. And it was wonderful because we knew that he understood what we were doing, he knew what he needed to be done, and he allowed us to do it. He just said, go out and do it, and we did. Let's hear an example of that. I understand that the Patek Philippe magazine, which has now been Mm -hmm. in production, or in print, I should say, for 26 years, was an idea that you had, because Philippe Stern would often complain that the media didn't understand Patek. They weren't writing about Patek in the way that it really deserved, explaining the difference between Patek and any other watch manufacturer and taking the time to learn and do that. And so you came up with a very smart idea of, well, why don't you say it yourself? Yes, it's so true. It's so true. And it was one of those very lucky times. I had a friend who had started a new 
job in a publishing company, and they had a quite a successful track record in bespoke publishing. It was something unheard of in Switzerland at the time. Nobody published a magazine themselves. But with the frustration that Mr. Stern felt about journalists getting the story wrong or not being able to explain it or not delving into the the the, the real differences between what Patek Philippe was doing or what Patek Philippe was trying to do, uh, again, because he focused only on his own company and was very often completely ignored what everyone else was doing. They do their thing and I do mine. People just didn't understand. After a point, I, I mean, I did have the luck of understanding that, wow, what my friend could do and her company could do was something completely new and could have been a way for us to distinguish ourselves. Could dis Patek Philippe could take its own voice. And I remember presenting that uh, idea to Mr. Stern, just he, uh, just us two in his office, and he just looked at me and he said, I said, can I work on this project so that I can come back to you with a proposal? And he said, yes, please, go do it. And that was the start. And that, that was, was the, the beginning of the magazine. And so I I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. And went back to my office and picked up the phone and called my friend. And I said, we have a green light. We have to submit a proposal. And it was so exciting. And that's how it started. It was just you know, uh, it was. A, you went into his office. This is what we should do. He said, "Yes, yes let's, let's said, have a look at it." Yeah. And I had the great privilege of being in that actual meeting when that first presentation when we had of the, the magazine. Yeah. And we were yeah. sitting there. It was amazing. The company presented such different creative ideas and how to position Patek in its own world, in its own league, which is what right. was always needed. But we were blown away, weren't we? Because they understood. Mm. Yes. Yes. And that's when Philippe Stern said, yep, let's do it. But just remember, we were just going to do it in English. That's right. Primarily for the American market, because the American market was sort of frustrating us at the time, as you've right, already explained. Right. And he went, no. And he said, if you wanted to communicate with people, you have to, if you really want to communicate with them, you have to communicate with them in their own language. And we are all over. We actually need French, English, German, Italian, Spanish, <laughs> at the time, Russian, Japanese. Chinese, eight languages we published in. Unbelievable. From the, literally from, from the, the get-go. From the get-go. No one else. Not any other, not, never mind not any other watch brand, but not any other luxury brand in the world was doing that. Any other magazine. Any other Do magazine. Do you know any other magazine that publishes? At in that time, no. So here we go again. Here's Philippe coming out of the box at another level that no one's ever done before. Right. Okay, this is a good idea. I like it. Make it happen. Right. And that's exactly what yeah. happened. So tell us what the philosophy was behind the magazine. Because it's still maintaining that today, I think, really, really well, which is why it survived for well, 26 years. It, and the <laughs> other thing is, it, it wasn't all about money and budgets, because in those days, we didn't have budgets for things like that. He just said, go do it. And Make it work, yes. <laughs> he said, tell me how much it's going to cost. And he funded it. So it was a bit of a different time. But... In the end, he he gave us a green light and we did it. It wasn't just about talking about Patek Philippe, was it? It was really no. to create a almost like a club, if you want. If you owned a Patek Philippe, you had a privilege. It was insider information about it was original. It was if you understand Patek Philippe, you also can appreciate and understand all kinds of other art forms, other kinds of businesses. It was everything in the magazine was bespoke. It was original. It had to be original articles, original artwork, contributions by original people. People, you didn't have to be famous to write in the magazine. You just had to be original. And one of the, one of the, one of the arguments, the perpetual argument that we had was everybody who was in the markets wanted more information about Patek Philippe in the magazine. And Mr. Stern said, no, only one article about a modern watch and one article about a historical timepiece. And that's all. And no advertising. He was starting to sell the brand. He was starting to sell the world of Patek Philippe, right. not just the watches, this it was a broader world. environment. Right. And it was a challenge, and it still is a challenge today, yes. to come up with subjects that haven't been reported on, because obviously we're in the 
social media. Yeah. We can in the learn, digital age and <laughs> learn any about anything we want within seconds. Right on our phones. We don't need to pick up a beautiful glossy magazine to learn about something、right. and wait six months for the next issue to come out. Anyway, at the time it was very revolutionary, and obviously now it's still the same principle. There's more articles about watches because people are ready now, aren't they? The market's very, the world is different now. There's a much better knowledge for fine timepieces. And yeah, then, you know, at the time, time, I mean, I remember Mr. Stern. He was so. He didn't want so many articles about Patek Philippe because he didn't want to brag about Patek Philippe.、Oh, so extraordinary! I mean, there's a, a lot to、man. say, but he was—it was about humility. And、yes. do you remember that conversation about saying no advertising? Yes. And we were all looking at each other around the table, saying, "What about us? <laughs> what are what, what are we going to put on the outside back cover? You know, I mean, the the reality of it was we have to put on an an ad, and be, it's going to be a Patek Philippe ad. So. Choose one that you like because we have to put something on the outside back cover. It was as silly as that, hard to. But it was a wonderful time because we had new ads to put on the back cover. Yes, that, we did. That was, the, that was、yep. the start of you never actually own a Patek Philippe; you merely take care of it for the next generation. So that in itself is another another.、Podcast. It's another whole story. It's another whole but story. But it all meshed together. But it together. all came together、yep. at the same time. Yep. Exactly. And again, it's Philippe Stern's vision. He was willing to listen to people in his company who said, "This isn't working, Mr. Stern. Can we change it?" Right, and he'd say yes. Go yes. and do that. Yeah, that's one of the wonderful examples about why Patek is different. Your actual first original job, which was, of course, looking after the Americas—that's U.S., Canada, the Caribbean, and South America, of course—and、mm -hmm. these are big, essential markets. But obviously, especially the U.S.A. and South America. This was an exciting time. We covered initially why, but you had to differentiate what you were doing in the States. And one thing that you did. That I think a lot of us from that time can remember really well was a very special exhibition in. Fort Worth, Texas. Oh yes, tell us a little bit about that because that came. That was in 1995, was it? Yeah, 95. 95. It was in 1995. And that exhibition, basically a grand exhibition, a Patek Philippe grand exhibition that we know so well now from around the world, from、yep. New York, Singapore, London. Something of that level had never been done before. Talk us through about it. It was a an opportunity that was offered. To us, not everybody in the whole world can get on an airplane and fly to Geneva and visit Patek Philippe. So, what do you do if people you have an opportunity? You can go to them. So we were saying, okay, if we go to them, what what are we going to do? What are we going to take? What are we going to show? And Mr. Stern was very concerned that not everything have a commercial objective. Of course, our business is to sell watches, but there's a lot else that needs to be said and and shared. Because, you know, once you understand what Patek Philippe is, you don't really sell it. It becomes something you you want to have. It becomes something that you desire. Anyway, his desire was to show the world what Patek Philippe does in the '90s, link it to our heritage, and put it in a place where. Anyone could come, you know, a museum. Put it in a museum because anyone can go to a museum. You don't have to, you know. Some people are afraid to push the door of a jeweler because they don't have that kind of money to buy expensive jewelry. They can't go there, you know. So we were offered the opportunity to showcase Patek Philippe. In a museum. Wow, that was an interesting idea. So I got on an airplane. I remember calling Hank, and I remember calling you and saying, "Okay, let's go see it. Let's just go there." And so the name of the museum was the the Sid Richardson Collection of Western Art. So that museum showed primarily two artists, wasn't it? it yeah, it was, was Remington and Remington Russell. Remington and Russell. Yes, and sculptures so, and all kinds of interest. There was there were prints, there were sketches, there were oil paintings, there were sculptures, there were saddles. Mr. Sid Richardson was a collector of Western art, and it was his private museum. And that's another thing because Mr. Cern also 
had a private collection. We didn't have a museum yet, but we had a collection. And we never showed it because there wasn't a building. There was no museum. That's another whole chapter. That's another story. That's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but but anyway, so we went to Fort Worth to see the Sid Richardson collection. And I must admit, I have a weakness for Western art. I just loved it. And I could understand, I could see what we could do at Patek Philippe, and I could see the paintings on the walls. And to me, it was just so obvious to have a key feature piece created for this exhibition. We had to do a miniature enamel painting of something in the museum. And there were so many beautiful paintings, you can't believe. So I was like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm thinking, oh, God, we're going to make a pocket watch with an enamel on it, and it's going to be one of these. And that's going to be the talking piece of this exhibition. Besides the American watches in Mr. Stern's private collection that we were going to bring out, dust off, and show to the Americans, because Amer Patek Philippe has a big, big heritage in the United States. That's right. And Americans have been buying Patek since it started. Right. So I had my my camera because in the time we didn't have phones with cameras in them. And I took my camera. I took pictures of the things in the museum that I liked. And also to share with my colleagues back in Geneva, what was this collection? And I asked the museum curators for, they had a very nice um, selection of slides of the most important paintings and sculptures in the museum. And I took them home back to Geneva and put them in a Kodak carousel and set up my little carousel in the conference room where we had the mail readings every morning. And Mr. Stern invited the head of production, my boss, a couple of people in the complications, you know, in the watchmaking department, a couple of people who are involved, very much involved in design. And I just spoke about this museum collection and what I had loved and I explained that my idea was that we would be able to reproduce something from that collection on as a miniature enamel. So I started my, took my little remote and clicking through the slides and I'm not really needing to say anything. It's just about visual impact. I'm clicking and clicking and click, click. And Mr. Sun says, stop, go back. I go back and he says, that one. Continue. Click, 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 click. Stop. Go back. That one. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, no way. And that happened five times. Incredible. Five times. So you were hoping for one I was miniature hoping enamel, for one, and, and he chose five. Five. On the spot. On the spot. Just from looking at those pictures. Yes. So this is a real insight for anyone listening to then, this. It was unreal. And then he looked at them and he said, and that one's going to be an engraving. And that one's going to be painted by Suzanne Hoare. And that one's going to be... I mean, he actually... He, 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 from that he knew, second he, he knew. knew from the Moment he saw. That he knew who was going to paint what. Unbelievable. And then there were other things, of course, I told you in the museum, beautiful saddles and things like that. And then he says, and we're going to make... A Western dunk clock. And that was a, how do I say, a collage of longhorns and cowboys and uh, cacti and, and it was a prairies and wow. And we made a dunk clock also. Amazing. So can you imagine? We got six pieces produced for this exhibition. Well, unheard of. Unprecedented. Unheard of. Never happened before. We had to make showcases for that exhibition. Everything was prepared. We wrote the history of Patek Philippe with America. We chose the pieces from Mr. Stern's collection. And we hung the pieces that we created from the beautiful uh, paintings in the museum right in front of the painting. So people were looking at the painting and then looking at the pocket watch. And, and what better way to understand how extraordinary what, miniature What the art of miniature, miniature enameling was. Yes, yeah. it really is replicating yeah. exactly what the painting that was. That was fantastic. Now, one of the extraordinary people that made one of those miniature enamels is Suzanne Rohr. Yes. Who is, without question... A living legend, basically. She is the finest of all miniature enamelists. And you... Well, she devoted her life to painting for Mr. Philip Stern. Which is um, unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? Mm. And you had an extraordinary privilege, I believe. You actually went to her workshop, which is in her home, because she can't yes. go anywhere yes. else, because yeah. the biggest single 
problem that an enamelist has is dust. So they have yes, to be in their no, own it's... very clean environment, which is another reason why they don't allow people to come in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us about that, because you're literally one of a handful of people in the world who's had that privilege yes, to see it, her work. It was really, um, it was really, uh, she's a fascinating artist and it was wonderful to see her, her, how she painted and where she painted and how she prepared and how nervous she was about being able to capture this huge painting. Because actually the painting that we asked her to paint was about a meter and a half wide and a, a meter tall. I mean, it was a very big canvas that she had to capture on the, you know, the tiny cover of a of a pocket watch. Just and a couple of inches. She was yes. really, really nervous about that and did several, I mean, I went back and met her several times to check her sketches and she wanted to be sure that she had included all the important things and that the skyline was right and the horizon was right. And, you know, it was really fantastic. And exchange with her when she started painting. She invited me to come back and look at the painting in, you know, I can't remember by heart, Tanya, how many times she painted and fired, but it was upwards of like 15 times just her part of that pocket watch. So, you know, it was just a labor of love. A true labor of love. It and we, was we, really something. We had the privilege, actually, um, of talking to someone who is still working for Patek Philippe as a miniature enamelist, Anita Porsche. Mm, yes. And she's the only yeah, other person yeah. that we've ever heard of, other than maybe Philippe Stern, who's had the privilege of going to her house yes. and seeing her work. Yes. Um, so it's fascinating to learn about that. And yeah, it was real. It was very special, I, I do admit. And, you know, I, at the time, I, I also learned how important Suzanne Hoare was to the company and how beautiful her work was. It was just outstanding. Anyway, it was a highlight. It was certainly a highlight to a have highlight. that piece uh, in the exhibition. And and it was a big success. It was a huge success, Tanya. People came in Fort Worth because it was advertised in the, they, you know, big Fort Worth newspaper, a whole page print, and people lined up outside the museum to come in. The curators of the Sid Richardson collection hadn't seen lines around the block for people waiting patiently to get in to the museum to see the the exhibition. And so what we learned from was that a thrill. was that there was a eagerness, yes. an appreciation to learn about Patek, even though it really wasn't a well-known brand. Rolex was the only brand really known in the US at the time, mm. obviously with others, but especially in Texas. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was an extraordinary time. And now that's what we expect from all over the world when there is a grand exhibition, people lining up around the block that was unheard of at the time, and I think that yes. Uh, but imagine that the the step that it took for the company to say, "Wow, we can do this," well, and people love it, and so we're going to keep doing it. And yes. the fact that they they can and do tailor make uh, these exhibitions is extraordinary, wonderful. I mean, for for our little team that did what we did, I had no idea that that was going to be the first step in a in a whole you know I would say a whole legacy, but look what it did. Yes, it, and and importantly, know. reintroduce people to these arts, yes. these métiers des arts, yeah. the yep. miniature enameling, engraving, cloisonné on the dome clock. This was a time when these pieces were not selling. People were not interested in buying those handcraft pieces. And again, so here we go. Or I would say less interested. Some, some markets had a better appreciation of that art form. It's certainly the Japanese... Um, our distributor in Taiwan absolutely loved and understood that those art forms. But not like today. Not like today. Today, it's it's much wider appreciation and much, and much more of a treasure to a lot of people than it used to be. So bravo to you for suggesting this to Philip well, Stern yeah, I can tell you and it him was, saying yes. And it was, and but it was it major, major teamwork because, you know, to do anything like that involved so many people and so many different skills in in the company. It was uh, it was a big, big team, big teamwork. And, and it made it very, very exciting for everyone also because you know, they directly participated in the, it wasn't just the commercial department, they went off and did their own thing. It was a whole company effort. 
to make it happen. And they were proud. They should have been proud. They, they had every reason to be proud. Well, you mentioned a little bit about the Asian markets there. So your responsibility after how long? It was about seven years? Seven obviously. years, yep. So um, you took on. I did. I did. The Asian markets. A daunting to add, thought. <laughs> to add to your already huge markets. And you were responsible, obviously, for Asia and the Pacific Rim. Why did this happen? Well, again, it was uh, one of those transition in the company. And my colleague who was in charge of those markets decided to move on and left the company. And they had to replace that person. And I could hardly believe my ears when Mr. Stern asked me if I would be willing to take on Market four, APAC, as well as the United States, as market three. Unbelievable. Yeah, that was, I, I really work. had to stop and think about it. I mean, that was a huge, like, how can I do, like, how can I do that? Well, I could do it because I didn't do it alone. You have to realize, and you know, because you lived in the family, you lived in the network. There were fantastic people all over the world whose lives were dedicated to promoting and bettering Patek Philippe's business. And I had the privilege now of interacting with directly with a whole new team of people. And because of the way the company functioned at the time, and it was a family, hands-on, personal attention business, I knew most of the distributors uh, and I knew the people in the key markets, and I liked them, and they liked me. So Mr. Stern proposed to them before he asked me, would they be okay with that? But I found out afterwards that he asked them first. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> unheard of. So it was like, okay, uh, okay, I'll do it. And of course, they, I helped them because they were the ones who were in charge in their market. It wasn't Geneva telling them how to run their business. My job was to help them. So I said, okay, tell me what you need help with. And that's how it worked. So you'd already proven that you listened to the market. So you listened yes. to the US, you helped them get back to running their own show. You understood how that market worked. Mm. And then it was the same in Asia. So now Asia is an enormous market for the Huge. watch and luxury market. Enormous, enormous. And But it always was there, wasn't it? Yes, and so, as you said, you were working with people who'd already been working with Patek for decades. Right. right. Um, it was a known brand there. Yes. Uh, so it wasn't like the wild, wild west where you had no. to go and dig up new opportunities. And it leads me back to another market we haven't talked about that you were also responsible for, which is South America, which was an enormously important market for Patek. Our listeners know, I'm sure, about Gondolo Laborial yeah, in Brazil, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. which for many, many decades was Patek Philippe's largest single retailer. Bigger, bigger. <laughs> A crazy collector's club. I mean, they were, be, be, yeah, well, they were that, really something. They were bigger than Tiffany as a retailer, which is hard for us to understand today. But after the Second World War, markets just started yeah, to shut had, down. Is that right? They had so many political issues and, you know, problems in the countries and their businesses just got closed down. They just couldn't operate. And there's another thing, you know, Patek Philippe had a hybrid way of working with people. Sometimes we had, in some markets, distributors. Like in the and, U.S. Like in the U.S. and sometimes, and, you know, HSWA was in charge of distributing the watches in the market directly to retailers who sold them to their customers. In some markets, we didn't have a distributor. The market was too small. We had one family to whom we sold watches. And that family took care of, of representing Patek Philippe in their country. I can specifically think of, you know, Argentina, Colombia, Chile, Brazil. They were families and it was a generational thing. And I didn't go to South America in the beginning because it was still a lot of political strife and the markets weren't buying Patek Philippe. If somebody from Colombia wanted a Patek, they came out and bought it and they took it back to their country. There just wasn't a business. But those families had, you know, grandfathers and fathers that had worked with the Stern family. And when the situation changed... I got calls from the boys from the third generation saying, hi, 
I'm Gonzalo Barros. My grandfather and my father, we have our shop in Santiago, and we work with Patek Philippe, and our market is open again. I would like to start. Fantastic. And uh, that was just, and that happened Many times. Well, because, I mean, many of our listeners are, are collectors of double-signed watches. And, you know, I can assure you that hearts start to flutter if they see Serpico, Iliano, or a Fechero. Mm-hmm. Um, in Uruguay. Bauer. Bauer. Kling Bauer. Yes, yes. And, and, and these are names that people know. Of course. Very well in the collectors' market. Well, they were market. the most important people in their markets, and they're from the Patek Philippe side. I mean, think about it. If they couldn't do it, no one else could. And when they had to stop importing because their borders were closed, Patek's answer was, "Well, okay, we're sorry, and you know, don't worry, but let us know if anything changes." And Patek Philippe didn't run around trying to open other markets or go in through a back door or go, you know, they find just another retailer. Find they just... another retailer because that's not what Patek Philippe does. And uh, just waited. Hmm. And things changed. And those young men came and knocked on the door and said, We're ready. We can start again. So I but said, Waiting for decades. Decades. That's decades. That's the difference. But they were waiting for decades <laughs> to get the door open. And then when it was open, they came. And so then I planned my first trip to South America. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was a discovery tour. And I went to them because we hadn't had any contact at headquarters for years and years, except Christmas cards saying, hi, we're, we we love you and we miss you. And, and that's it. But then I went and I saw the markets again. And I mean, Mr. Stern asked me to tell him whether I thought we really could and should start again. And we did. Where did you start again? Which markets reopened again? Uh, Colombia, Chile, Brazil. I did go to Uruguay to see Jorge Frechero. He treasured his pateks, but he couldn't start again. But he received me like a queen and showed me everything about their business. They just didn't have the customers anymore. Or he didn't think they had the customers anymore. I went to Costa Rica which was a completely unusual. And, and they, too, showed me everything but didn't feel that they could start again. So it was basically Colombia and Brazil, Argentina and Chile. So that those, was the four that and, were And they were again. the big markets anyway yeah. from before. Yeah. So, so that made sense. But, but um, that's changed. I mean, they've added since. Sure. But, oh, yeah. Know. Costa Rica. I mean, now I, has a store. I, yes. I did open Peru. I remember doing oh, opening Lima. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. It's fun. Yeah, so you you really have traveled the world and been everywhere. And that's why you have such a wonderful understanding of the watch market. Let's go to where you are today. Because Well, that's a leap. That's a that's <laughs> that's a leap. But yeah. I know you tried it is and it isn't. you tried to escape, didn't you? You I did. tried to escape the world of watches. I did. The watches were still nipping at your ankles. Yes. And now you work with Genus, which is another independent watch company, Mm -hmm. but very different to Patek in that it is relatively new and it's just starting its horological journey. That's right. So how interesting for you with your enormous experience and skill to put it into this fledgling little company. And it's extraordinary because right out of the box in 2019, it won the Mechanical Achievement Award at the GPHD. Gee, oh, is that yeah, right? That, that was really something. Yes, we entered Genesis' first timepiece in June of 2019 in the Grand Prix de l'Horlogerie de Genève. And of course, there's certain requirements that you have to do. You have to, you know, build a real watch, sell a real watch, take a beautiful picture of it, write a press file, introduce your company or, you know, introduce your watch to the competition and tell the organization which category you wanted to enter in. So clearly the timepiece that was imagined and invented by Sébastien and Sébastien Bivier uh, co-founded uh, Genus with Catherine Henry. And they showed me the timepiece. And I said, wow, this is really something. This is beautiful. And it's really different. And it's something I could appreciate 
immediately. Mechanically. Mechanically. Yes. Given, given From all those years at Patek. Yes. And then your understanding. Other well, I knew exactly what I was looking at. It mm -hmm. was an absolutely amazingly beautiful movement. Fantastic and different, really different, exotic, in a different way than Patek Philippe. So we decided that, yes, we should give it a go and enter it in this competition. So we did. And we signed up and we get, gave the watch over and, you know, paid our fee to join the competition. And the secretariat of the Grand Prix de l'Horlogerie called us up and said, thank you so much for entering your, your watch in our, in our competition. It's really beautiful. We've registered for you for the, you know, uh, mechanical exception prize. That's the category you're signed up in. But who are you? I mean, it, for them, we came out of nowhere. You know, Sebastien quietly had invented this timepiece, made the prototype, wore it for a year and a half, if not two years. It works. We finished it and entered it in the competition. Amazing. So at the time, Grand Prix de l'Horlogerie had decided that they would take the watches closer to the markets. And for us, that was fabulous. We were, I mean, talk about a small team and beginners. The Grand Prix de, took the whole competition or, or the finalists in each category to the markets. And I accompanied the genus timepiece to Bangkok. We went to Sydney and we went to Mexico City. And that all happened, those three big exhibitions, and then we came back, and the vote was in November, and we won in our category. And that was just vaulted us onto the, the world stage, and it was so nice. It was, wow, it was, you can dream of something well, like that. How exciting to be part of that, Pamela, and to really go from one of the most established independent companies in the world to this new baby. And mm -hmm. how did Patek, your experience of Patek, help you with this new company? Well, you know, I was so lucky to have had such fantastic colleagues and a good understanding of the markets and the people. I like people and I like I liked people and I had a wonderful network of people. And if there was one thing I could do to help Genus would just be to call my friends and say, I need to show you this timepiece. It's fantastic. And they would take my calls and I, they would receive me and I showed them and they'd, wow, what is this? It's really different. It's cool. And, you know, the, the market for independent watchmaking has just exploded. It's boomed. And we sort of entered what I mean others went before us I mean think of the independent brands that ha are well established independent brands but they've been at it for 20 years already oh, so longer. they opened mm -hmm. the door mm -hmm. and when I arrived you know a lot of the my my retail connections and a lot of my friends in publishing and everybody was they're already attuned to it so when they saw genus they were like wow we love this and for me what can I do? I can fast track. I mean, I have the privilege of being able to do that. And that's what made us go quickly. Well, I think that's what's so exciting about the watch world today is that new companies like Genus can come onto the marketplace and within a matter of years be making new timepieces, new movements that we've never seen before. Yes, and, and there's a whole level of understanding exactly. and education. People have learned what fine timepieces are. People appreciate them. And there's a whole new buzz in the market because there's so many really cool watches out there now, you know, and very, very different. It's, it's, it's the art and science of watchmaking, I mean, at its best. And it's taking all kinds of forms. And I really feel the industry is vibrant, there's still a lot to do, and there's a lot of people working at it really hard. And I also think at a very high level. Well, as Genus is showing, yes. At so, a very high level. So it's so exciting for you and I as old timers, really, now, which we oh hate, dear, Tanya. hate to even admit to that. But it's wonderful, isn't it, to yes, see but, you know, how it's come to yeah. this. But you say old timers, but you know, I, I look back on it. When and you I were say, the youngest. I was the youngest. And <laughs> when you joined Patek. <laughs> to, to me, it's like the, the privilege of being able to pass on that knowledge and still use it. Exactly. It, yeah. Which is wonderful. So this is such an exciting time for you yeah. and Genus, and we wish you, without question, all the very best. Thank you. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you. We always have a question that we ask our lovely guests, which is, what watch are you wearing? Oh, I'm wearing 
one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm wearing my 5035 rose gold. It's an annual calendar. Oh, now that's yeah. a special watch. There's a whole nother podcast about that. Too. <laughs> it is. And we mentioned at the very beginning, didn't we, that, that bringing in new movements was something at a small complication specifically yes. was something that Philippe Stern realized there was a gap in the market. Yes. Wow. And what you're wearing is the solution to that. that so tell us was, about that. It was such an important new timepiece. We had a lot of watches to sell at Patek Philippe, but let's just talk about watches that people know, like Calatrava's, okay, signature timepiece. The Calatrava was between $10,000 and $13,000. That was the high end of the time only. time only, not millions of diamonds all over the watch. Just, mm -hmm. just the, your basic normal strap watch. strap watch. And the next watch was a perpetual calendar at $40,000. There was nothing in between. An enormous jump. An enormous jump. And, you know, one day... <laughs> Mr. Stern told us that there was going to be a new timepiece and they were working on a new complication, a new category of complications. And there was a lot of debating in the company because we called them small, petite complication. And of course, that it's not a small complication. Complication is a complication. It's just that we didn't know what else to call it. There was no other word. So we ended up calling them small complications. But watches like the annual calendar and the travel time were in that category. And it just opened up a totally new clientele for us. I mean, all those people who had their Calatravas but couldn't make the leap up to $40,000 purchase, <laughs> what were they going to buy next? Well, we gave them something to buy. And you know, you forget that only Patek Philippe made it for 20 years. Okay, now the patent has fallen into the public domain and lots of people are making annual calendars. But you forget back in those days, it was an invention. And it came right out of the, the R&D department, which was one of the most important departments at the company. People don't realize how much investment, how many people worked in that department and how much investment was made by Mr. Stern in pure R&D pushing the science of research in watchmaking. Anyway, we got the annual calendar, and I chose this watch. And, of course, there was a lot of humming and hawing about the fact that a lady was going to wear a man's watch. Isn't that wonderful? Which and is, how different that is today. Yeah, whoa. Yes. Really totally different. I said, <laughs> I don't care. you were care. shocking people by wearing a man's watch. I loved it. And then the next thing they told me was, you're not allowed to buy a watch before the customers, which is, of course... Right, true. And so you're going to have to wait a long time to get one. Because and, demand was crazy and for I those said, when they when yeah, came yeah, out. Yeah, of course. And I said, I, I don't care. I'm putting my name down on the list one day. So Somebody... even in Patek, you had to put your name on the list and wait. Yes. I had to ask permission <laughs> to buy a watch um, and, uh, from Mr. S Philip Stern. Actually, no, I had to ask permission through Daniel Haberstisch, who was, who was in charge of the export department. Oh. And he was a neutral person. Oh, and so he, he knew how many numbers were going around the world. So yeah, that's and, why he... And he, he just took the list and he would go and see Mr. Philip Stern and just, they would decide if and who could buy watches and whether we had enough that we could afford to sell one to the, to the personnel. One day, one of those phone calls... Good morning, Pamela. Can you come and see me in my office, please? And I said, sure, I'll be right there. And I go down the hallway and I go, please sit down. And I sit down and he takes out Mr. Stern. Mr. Stern, Mr. Philip Stern. Stern. He takes out a burgundy box and passes it across the table to me. And, my, and he says, open it. Open it. Mm. <laughs> and I opened it and I was like, no, you're kidding. I mean, I was so excited. I was like, oh, you're kidding. And then he took his sleeve and he lifted it up and he said, look, I got mine too. <laughs> I love it. And he, I love it. And I said, oh, Mr. Stern, really? And I said, oh, which one do you have? And he said, I have the platinum one. Look, there's the little diamond. And I can tell you, we were like two, two kids, kids at a, you know, at a birthday party. I love it. And so I, he said, please be discreet. 
<laughs> I said, I'm so excited. <laughs> I you put wanted it to on. show everyone. And you know, we, we wore suits and jackets at the time in the in the office. There were no bare arms or anything. And so I just pulled my sleeves down over my new baby and I went back to my office. I was so excited. Anyway, that's just a little. That's the most wonderful story. I think that's the best story we've ever heard about somebody's watch that they're wearing. Yeah. I mean, that is such a personal story. And I think it's going to be of great interest to everybody who who's waiting for their Patek at the moment. Yeah, you just and have. To you wait. just have to wait. And that's how it's always been. Yes, and even yes. if you're senior management at Pate you Philippe, wait. you wait. Everyone waits. Yeah. And even Philippe Stern. Yes. And by the way, then, <laughs> then I had to pay for it. Oh, and yes, of <laughs> course. Know, so, of course. Exactly. You know, I think that's uh, the other thing with, that oh, people don't realise. We that yeah. working there, you didn't get a free watch. No. You know, no. So um that was that's a wonderful story, Pamela. Um, it has been a great privilege and so much fun to talk to you today. Oh, thank you, Your Tanya. Your stories are amazing and privileged and have you've given us a lovely taste of, of a time at Patek that was very, very important. Yeah, it was a special time. It really it was, was a special time. And really now I, I mean, I have so many happy memories of, of my time working at Patek Philippe and what a privilege it was. And it's in hindsight, wow, I really, I really see it now. And I'm happy with it. I really, really am. It was a special time and I was trusted. I was given responsibility and I worked really, really hard to make things right for the markets so that they could do their business. And I think most people would say that I did a good job. I think you did an extraordinary <laughs> business job. Business grew everywhere and it was it was fun. Well, it's so wonderful to hear you talk about it historically. Obviously, the 90s and early 2000s were extremely important in the history of Patek because so many things changed. And for you to have been sitting on the front row, virtually next to Philippe Stern and making it happen was a story we really enjoyed listening to. So thank you. Thank you. So this was the 20th edition in our podcast series. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast platform so as not to miss any further interviews. Thank you so much for listening. This is Tanya Edwards for Collectability. Collectability.